Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and I'm your host. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Today, we're bringing you a conversation between CKCU's Susan Johnson and our good friend, Wayne Grady. His new novel, The Good Father, comically and tragically reckons with a father and daughter's estrangement, the failures brought on by hubris, the limits of perception, and the price we pay for second chances. The Toronto Star says, a study in imperfect love and staggeringly fateful choices, the novel impresses because the failures, misunderstandings, and consequences begin with such ordinary thoughts and actions. Its tragedies originate in the everyday, and with that, Grady ably illustrates the vulnerabilities of merely being alive. Our host, Susan Johnson, is passionate about the transformative power of stories and loves to explore new ideas and places through her award-winning weekly radio program, The Friday Special Blend on CKCU. Here's Susan in conversation with Wayne Grady. She hears footsteps coming down the stairs and closes her notebook, waiting for him to knock. He has a key, but he doesn't use it when he knows she's in here, and she never locks the door. She learned that in rehab. Not even the bathroom door. Especially not the bathroom door. This knocking thing is a game they play. He gets to think he's being kind and considerate, and she gets to think she has some control over who comes into her room. Daphne? Sometimes she ignores him and he goes away. When that happens, he usually creeps back upstairs with his tea getting cold. Careful not to spill on the carpeted stairs. Maybe he assumes she's sleeping or taking a shower or on the toilet. But sometimes, after standing there for ten seconds, he knocks again, a touch harder with more authority, and calls her name a little louder with an inquisitive lift at the end. Daphne? Is he imagining her lying unconscious on the floor with a needle sticking out of her arm? Or does he know she's sitting there with, at the dining table, keeping very still and waiting for him to leave her alone? So this is another little game they play. Sometimes she gives in and calls back to him. She didn't used to, but these days she almost always does. Hey, Dad, it's open. A pause. Then he comes in and stands just inside the door. Feel like taking a tea break, he says? Sure. I'm just putting the kettle on. Earl Grey or Herbal? Earl Grey, please. He edges towards the table where her notebook is. What are you working on? He would have lasted about three seconds as a spy. Ah, stuff Sander gave me to do, she says. My memoirs. She finds herself studying her father as she waits for the water to boil. He looks like he's scowling, but he always looks like he's scowling. It's the way his face is made. Even when he drifts off into his private universe, he looks as though something in there is pissing him off. Apparently, you cannot control what enters your own private universe. Something uninvited always creeps in. Her father's the kind of guy who would rather look back at the blasted past than ahead to the doomed future. She's the opposite. For her, when the bottle is empty, she doesn't take it back for the deposit. She just buys a new bottle. He's wearing jeans, a baggy sweater, and slippers with toes that have separated from their rubber soles. He flaps when he shuffles away from the table. It's her opinion that men over a certain age, say 50, should not wear jeans of any kind. His teacup has a Union Jack on it and the words, drink tea and carry on. She loves him, of course she does. 
and his frightened look weighs on her heart. Yes, she does have a heart. How old is he? Hmm, she has to think for a minute. He's 51. Well, well, either those genes go or she does. I'm here this afternoon with Wayne Grady. He's the award-winning author of more than a dozen works of nonfiction and is also one of Canada's top literary translators. He's the author of two previous novels, Up From Freedom and Emancipation Day, a national bestseller which won the 2013 Amazon.ca First Novel Award, Bravo Wayne, and was long listed for the Scotiabank Giller Prize. He lives in Kingston, Ontario with his wife, the novelist and creative fiction writer Marilyn Simmons. Wayne, it's a real pleasure to have you join us here today and um, that we can talk about the, the Good Father. Thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. I'm intrigued to start, perhaps if we could ask you a bit about the, the first roots of the Good Father. In, at what point or in what way did you sense that you had a novel brewing? Well, that's always a difficult time to pin down. Um, I can there are sort of stages along the way. First of all, I should say that I am a father and I have two daughters. So the idea of writing a book about a father and a daughter has probably been with me since you know for forty six years. But <laughs> but um, I've I've always been interested in that relationship. Um, it, it's 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 I think it's it's different from. Uh, I, I imagine it as being different from the relationship between a mother and a daughter, for example, or a mother and a son, or even a father and a son. And so I and so I was interested in exploring that. Um, just just what kind of what kind of of dynamic or relationship gets established between a father and a daughter, and um, and you know, I mean, having daughters and and, and knowing what kinds of issues come up between fathers and daughters. Um, I, I, w I sort of wanted to see how that would work uh, novelistically. Now, I, I hasten to say that neither of my daughters has ever been in the kind of, <laughs> kind of uh, um, you know, sort of terrible situation that Daphne gets into. But, but you know, when you're, when you're a parent, you, I think you imagine the worst things happening as it, you know, as if almost as if to, to, in a way of warding off those things from happening. So, I, you know, when, when I was living in Toronto, I remember when my older daughter was five years old, she, uh, there was a, um, a, a, a young five, a five-year-old young woman, young girl was kidnapped from a, from a park nearby where we lived. And, you know, for the next six months, I met every time I couldn't see where my daughter was, I thought, oh, has, I, I hope she hasn't been kidnapped. And you sort of imagine what would happen. You imagine what it would be like to be the father of a daughter who's, who's who has been abducted or, or you know, kidnapped in, or something. And, you know, it's almost like you, you, you terrify yourself in order to protect yourself from, from the terror. It's, it's, a, it's a weird kind of thing. I think, I think parents imagine... All parents imagine the imagine terrible things happening to their children, and I think that's a way they have of of uh, inuring themselves against terrible things happening. You, it's almost as if you think, well, if I imagine my daughter being hit by a car, then she won't be hit by a car. You know, I've already gone through that terror. I've already gone through that horror. So I so there's no need for the universe to visit that on me now because I've already lived it. 
and and I so I think and if you imagine Harry in in the novel, Harry is a kind of person who does that all the time with everything. Uh, he he's a, one of the, he, his wife calls him a catastrophist at one point, and and he's and he is like that. He, he when 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 Eleanor goes off to a conference and and doesn't call him the minute the minute she gets off the plane, he thinks, oh, she's left me. She's not coming back, or she's been kidnapped, or she's been you know hit by a car, or or something. Some terrible thing has happened, and and you know he he, he sort of knows that that hasn't happened because it it. it doesn't happen more, you know, <laughs> in in real life as often as as he imagines it. So he so he, but he thinks that it, not consciously, but he thinks if I if I if I imagine that happening, then I've it, I've kind of jinxed it so that it won't happen. And and I and I I found myself when I was was raising my 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 family. I had that kind of cat- catastrophic approach to child rearing all the time, um, and you know, and I think we all do. You know, we when we're teaching them not to cross the street and a red light, you know, we we imagine them crossing a street against a red light. Uh, when we tell them don't get into a car with a stranger with candy, we imagine them getting into a car with a stranger, and so that's the way we kind of uh, we kind of at least that's the way I kind of and and therefore the the way Harry kind of gets through uh, his, his, um, his relationships. I'm going to ask you to tell us about the, the art of bringing Harry to life. Um, I'll ask you about Daphne too, but I'm, I'm curious about how, how you got to know this gentleman and um, how you, how you decided who he was and how he moved. Well, it's, uh, yeah, how, you know, it's kind of, hard to say how that happens i mean suddenly you feel yourself inhabiting another another character a, a character's personality there's a lot of me in harry um you know i mean i've been a teacher i've been a i i, I had never sold wine but <laughs> harry's a harry harry starts out as a journalist he, he he becomes a teacher at a community college he sort of graduates to becoming a professor at a, at a university, or at least an adjunct professor. I've done all of those things. Uh, he then leaves the, the university and open, and starts a wine distributing company. I've not done that, <laughs> but I am not unacquainted with wine. So, uh, you know, all of those things were areas that I felt that I could, I, I, I knew something about and I could write realistically about them. Um, and Harry's, you know, Harry's in his fifties. Uh, he, he's, he's, he's that kind of, uh, laconic, easy, easygoing, letting things slide kind of person. Uh, but he's also fairly intelligent. He's, he's well-read. He, he, he has his degrees in English, which is what my degree is in. Uh, and he's what, you know, he's, 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 he's a kind of a typical average middle class Canadian man. Um, and you know, there's, Parts of me are that too. <laughs> uh, Harry and I are like, except Harry doesn't write books. That might, maybe that would be a way of saying it. But but gradually, that's how it started. I mean, that's you, you can't stay with that that kind of a uh, trying to write the typical average kind of Canadian middle class guy for a whole novel for five years. You, you you kind of get bored with that guy, so you 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 start with that. But then you get then Harry takes over his personality, takes over his own character takes over and tell and starts telling me what he's going to do rather than me telling him what he's going to do. Uh, so if 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 I create the character 
thoroughly enough at the beginning, let's say in the first year of the working on the novel, then for the rest of the time, Harry will tell me what to do rather than me telling him what to do. And eventually, the novel just starts to unroll. The, the story, the plot, begins to sort of write itself after a while. Norman Levine once told me that, that uh, uh, halfway through a novel, it starts writing itself. Uh, I wish that were literally true. It's not, it's not quite as easy as that. But, but when you get to the halfway point in a novel, the, you, you, you've already made the major decisions. That you, that you have to make in terms of what kind of character he is, what, what's going to happen next, that kind of thing. Uh, and so in a way, it does kind of become easier in the second half. You're sort of, you're, you're following it rather than pushing it. Well, I guess when you push it, you're following it too, but you know what I mean. <laughs> you're following it rather than leading it. Um, and that's, that's how that, that seemed to work for me. To me, I'm almost picturing the the two-dimensional person heading down the runway, <laughs> lifting off the page and becoming three-dimensional, and there they are for you. Hello, yeah, Harry. yeah. Suddenly, they're sitting at your your dinner table and or across the room from you, telling you what they're going to do next. I'd like to have dinner with them, Wayne. Um, <laughs> and then I'm intrigued because you wrote a book where it was some he said, she said, father and daughter. What about Daphne? Well... Yeah, Daphne. Yeah, I don't. I don't know where Daphne came from exactly. Um, she sort of showed up at, 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 on my on my desktop, um, pretty much fully formed. I mean, the first my first the first thing I wrote. <clears throat> excuse me. The first thing I wrote in this novel was that that sort of scene, that long day of, of Daphne's life when uh, that starts on page one uh, that she's writing about, but in, in this, in, when I first wrote it, she was actually living it. Um, and it, it was somehow, it was in Vancouver. I, I remember uh, walking, I, I spent a fair amount of time in Vancouver when I was teaching it, uh, creative writing at UBC. And um, I used to go for walks and, and, and find just exploring various parts of the city and I found myself walking in the downtown east side, which was, you know, kind of a, had a kind of a, a horror, hor- horrible attraction to me. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a very, it's a sort of a seedy part of town. It's sort of East Hastings and around, around there. And um, I was just walking around, sort of rubbernecking the neighborhood. And I, was, I remember walking down this alleyway and I, and I, came to, uh, I found a, a dumpster in the middle of the alleyway, just just not far from Oppenheimer Park, which is where all the, the tent city and all the sort of, there's a lot of drug stuff going on around there. And um, I found myself standing in front of this dumpster and, and imagining, I said, okay, what would happen if someone fell into that dumpster? <laughs> you know, would that, would that be the end of that would that be the end of that person? Would someone come along and save them? So and I say, well, you know, let's 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 say someone does that, and and someone comes and finds them. Who would who would who would be the person who come and find them? So how would that woman, how would that person? I, I imagined it being a woman. How would that woman get into the dumpster? And how would the person who finds her find her? And that was sort of the the beginning for me. And I coupling that with my idea that I wanted to write about fathers and daughters, well, it would be a daughter who fell into the dumpster and a father who found it. Um, so without trying to trying not to give away too much of the novel, um, that sort of was the, gen- the genesis of, of, of using that location. And, and, you know, then when you start, when you think, okay, what kind of, what kind of daughter would 
fall into a dumpster. <laughs> and then you kind of got, you know, so you find, you know, you've got to fill in those blanks and you've got, you've got a character. Something that really stood out for me, Wayne, in the book was how you used place. And I mean, I'll ask you about the, the extent to which that was intentional, but watching the pieces of the book come together and the various, um, what are we going to call them, um, emotions that were felt and expressed while people were in Toronto, while people were in Eastern Ontario, mm-hmm. while people, Wayne, were in the Hotel Vancouver. It's like, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're all, all places that are f- familiar to me. I, I've, I've lived in small town eastern Ontario. I've lived in, in fact, I live in small town eastern Ontario, although I must say White Falls is not Kingston. Um, I've lived in Toronto. Uh, I've spent a fair amount of time in Vancouver. I, I feel badly because I said some really sort of not nice things about Vancouver. I actually lo- love Vancouver. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful city. Uh, but in order to, you know, sort of the, in order to, you know, sort of make the make this the, the setting match the mood of the character. I had to have Daphne say that she thought it was a grubby city, uh, just because she inhabits a grubby part of it. Um, so I, you know, yes, place is important for me. I mean, I, I, I novels I think are part. Every novel is in part is a is a travel book. Um, part of the reason we like reading fiction, I think, is to imagine ourselves in the countries or in the locations that, that where they take place. I know that's true, particularly true of uh, detective fiction, which I read a lot of. But, you know, I feel that I know the British countryside really, really well because I've read a lot of Agatha Christie or a lot of P.D. James. And and, uh, and so I think there's a real a strong... Uh, travel element or place element and the more realistic the setting for a for a work of fiction the more the easier it is for the reader to 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 inhabit it to to drop that to have that willing suspension of disbelief that writers strive for readers expect the the non-fiction aspects of a novel to to make sense to work and if they don't then they they lose they lose the trust in the writer. One of the things the writer has to do right from the page one is to is to get the reader to trust the writer. So that if I tell you something that you think is unlikely, you're going to believe me because I also told you several things already that you know to be true. So the so the role of nonfiction in fiction is is you know it's it's crucial. Um, I remember I remember reading. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe's novel, um, um, I forget, the name is, Pym is in the name somewhere. The, anyway, 1850 Pym, and, and he gets on a, a sailing ship, a whaling ship, and he travels into, into the Antarctic Ocean and uh, encounters polar bears. And as soon as I read that, you know, I, I almost stopped reading it because, wait a minute, <laughs> there are no polar bears in the Antarctic. Uh, and the, to me, that it's important that that nonfiction element is respected, uh, and so you have to get your facts right. I mean, which is you know why I think uh, if you publish short stories in magazines, they're fact checked just as if they were a regular uh, feature article. Uh, that surprised me when I, ha- I had a story in uh, in, in um, the Walrus a few years ago, and the and the uh, the fact checker called me up and challenged me on a few of the things that I'd written in the story. You know, what what was the name of the street in Barbados, you know? And uh, I said, well, 
wait a minute, this is fiction. <laughs> but they, nope, they wanted to get the facts. They wanted, if, if I said that, that store was on that street in, in Barbados, then they wanted to make sure it was. So, I mean, I, and I agree with that. You know, I, I agree that that's really important in fiction as well. as And, you know, then we can talk about the role of fiction in nonfiction. <laughs> that's, a, that's another conversation. But uh, again, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a valid one. How do we stretch and how do we really bring home our understanding of what the facts are? And yeah. I assume that the, you know, we go back to the, the various creative devices that we can use take us to places that the facts can't go. Right. And, and we often do that uh, inadvertently, uh, thinking we're, saying, we're telling something that is actually true. When, if we're relying on our memory, suppose you're writing a memoir uh, and you're writing something that happened to you when you were eight years old. What are the, what's the likelihood that you're getting all the facts straight? I mean, very, very low. So, you know, I love this, I love this gray area between fiction and nonfiction, so creative nonfiction and fiction. And I think this is where the, it's, very, it's a very exciting place. When I was up in the Arctic with some bunch of scientists, I remember talking to a, 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 a chemist who was telling me that for him, the exciting, all the really exciting scientific discoveries are between disciplines. You know, when a chemist talks to a, to a physicist and, and, and they're, where, they're, where their disciplines overlap, that's where the exciting work is being done. Well, it's the same thing when it, with, with fiction and nonfiction and having written both. I'm very, very comfortable in that gray area between between fiction and nonfiction. And you're also a translator. To what extent does that come into your your fiction writing, Wayne? Well, you know, just being it, it, keeping me aware of world literature in a way that I, if I only read English literature, I would I would I would feel quite bereft. Uh, even even um, I mean, I read I read I only translate from French. And I only read French, although having spent a lot of time in Mexico in the last few years, I'm, my, my Spanish is starting, I can, I'm getting to the point where I can read Spanish too, you know, with, with a good dictionary. Um, and, but, you know, just, just having that, uh, the sense of, of otherness with me all the time uh, is very important for, very important for writing. It's also just very important for being a rounded human being. Um, and living in, in a country like Canada, which is officially bilingual, you know, we have that sense of, of, of another culture right beside us all the time. And I think and I really I, I, that's really a valuable thing. It, it, I think it gives our, our whole country another level of, of meaning that uh, that is very important to our to our sense of who we are. Amazing. Wayne, I'm curious about the the journey that you went on in developing the the book and in particular if there are decisions that you had to take along the way that that got it to the point where it is that you'd be comfortable telling us about um well there are always decisions yeah there are always i mean almost every day um you know when you start when i started the novel i didn't know exactly where it was going to end i didn't know how it was going to end i didn't know i mean without giving too much away uh, I didn't know I was going to be going out to Cortez Island <laughs> at, the, at the end. Um, um, the, it, 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 just in terms of plot, I mean, yeah, there were lots of decisions that had to be made. Uh, you know, there, there are things that happened to the characters uh, along the way that I didn't know were going to happen. When, when I, as I mentioned earlier, the characters sort of sat down at some point and told me what was going to happen. Um, you know, one of the one of the once you make a decision, like one of the decisions I made was that 
Harry's worst fears are going to come true. Okay? So Harry imagines, his, he's afraid, he imagines that Eleanor is going to leave him when she's in South Africa at this, at this conference. So at some point in the novel, later on in the novel, she's going to leave him. Uh, not right away. His fears aren't, aren't immediate and aren't real at that point. But in order to, in order to, to sort of re- make everything really as bad happen to Harry as he imagines them happening, that's one of the things that has to, has to happen. He imagines Daphne uh, being, uh, becoming a drug addict. Well, then she becomes a drug addict. And he imagines his daughter hooking up with the wrong kind of guy. She hooks up with the wrong kind of guy. So you, you, one of the things I think I like to do in fiction is to, is to push everything to an extreme, to, to make it reach a crisis, and then see how people behave uh, in that crisis. I mean, people can, people can say that, like Harry says he's a good father. Uh, many people say they're a good father. And there's a connection there with my previous novel, Up From Freedom, because, because um, Virgil Moody in that, in that novel thinks he's a good person. He thinks he's a good owner of slaves. <laughs> if, if that's, I mean, you could think that in those days, in 1850. Um, but when it comes down, he thinks he's, he thinks he treats Annie really well in that novel. And Harry in, the, in this novel thinks that he's a good father to, to Daphne. And you can think, you can convince yourself that you're a good father, or a good husband, a good person, a good, um, I don't know, a good politician until you get into a situation, a crisis situation. And then, and then I think many of us revert to what we really are. And and so and Harry finds that the opposite actually. I mean, he's 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 convinced himself that he's a good. He, Harry's the opposite in a way. He's convinced himself that he's a good father, and uh, you. So you I, you expect that under a crisis he would be not such a good father. But in this this case, he actually comes up comes through, and and uh, and you know becomes a very important and significant. Um, figure in in Daphne's life when he at the time when both of them thought that that was that role was over for him and it was interesting because of the way you I found that you set up the learning that he had to do to get to that point um evolved to get there certainly he did yeah I, I think that that has to do with what I think is happening between men and women in general is not just fathers and daughters but men and women I think Men are men are beginning. I hope <laughs> to learn how to be with women in a way that's not not patriarchal or or exploitative or any of the things that that we have been with women uh, for for centuries. I, I and and I think that carries over with fathers and daughters. I mean, um, one of the things Harry has to learn is just to shut up and listen to Daphne. And I think one of the things men in general have to learn is to shut up and listen to women and shut up and listen to indigenous people and shut up and listen to, you know, anyone who has something interesting and important to say. Instead of telling people what we're going to do to help them, we have, we have to learn how to ask them what they want us to do to help them. And, and that's what Harry has to learn. He has to learn to just listen to Daphne. Now that you've raised daughters... And now that you've written a book about fathers and daughters, um, what of your your assumptions about writing of that experience? What's holding true for you? 
I think that I was I had to teach I had to learn how to be Harry before Harry did, in order to make in order to make Harry who he who he ends up being, um, and so what I learned I guess from from that is that it works. <laughs> It's a, you know that that it's it's hard it's hard to be a good father it's hard to be a good person, um, but it's worth it, and it's worth it not only for the people who you love and are with, but it's also worth it for yourself. Um, Harry, you know, as you as as we cannot mention now, Harry learns it a little bit too late, but he but Daphne learns it, and and Daphne um, Daphne's life turns well. Daphne's life becomes very different because she has learned things uh, by watching Harry, and uh, and I think that's that's all we can really hope for um, is that we we live and learn. <laughs> God, oh, don't tell me that my whole novel can be reduced to that phrase. <laughs> but we also know that the experience of living and learning is is rich. Yeah, it's a lot to take in, and it's a lot to sit with and this novel is is it has more in it than my other my previous two novels for me i mean I, when i finished writing this i yeah i i just felt totally drained that i put everything i am into this book uh i know i, I know i used to talk I, matt cohen was a good friend of mine and and uh I'm, I'm before i was writing fiction and he he after every one of his novels he would just say okay that's it I can't write another book I just put everything I know into that book I put everything I am into that book that's it I have got nothing else to write about of course two weeks later he'd be you know three chapters into the next novel but um, but I know now how he feels it he feels it's and it's, that's one of the things I find is different uh, after writing a work of fiction than writing a work of nonfiction uh, nonfiction when you're writing a a nonfiction book let us say about global warming or the North Pole, you can compartmentalize everything you know about global warming and everything you know about the North Pole and use it in that book. And it doesn't drain things that you know about Mexico or that you know about, I don't know, playing chess. But when you're writing a novel, it it saps all of those areas out of, out of you. I mean, everything, everything every, all of life gets sort of thrown into that, into that book. And and uh, and that's how I feel with this one. It's, it kind of makes it difficult to talk about too, because it's sort of like talking about everything. Yeah, <laughs> which <Yeah>. is difficult. <laughs> so so Matt Cohen picks up and starts writing again. Mm-hmm. Um, your your book is launching. What's on your mind these days, Wayne? Um, in terms of if you had a a wish list of stuff that you might like to tackle. Is there is there anything on it that you're comfortable talking about? Oh sure, I, I've I you know I, I, I'm not going to say that COVID has been good to me, but I will say that COVID has given me a lot of time, giving us a lot of time to just sit at home and not go out and not eat in restaurants and not get you know not go to movies. And to write, I mean, I've been I've been writing a lot, uh, and, and uh, I have I have a book of essays, I have a book of short stories, I have I, I'm I'm actually writing a dictionary, a lexicon of COVID terms. Uh, it's kind of a devil's dictionary of of COVIDiana. <laughs> I just made up that word, but it's a good one. I think I'll use it. Uh, put it in the dictionary, and. Um, and so, and I and I've also written uh, a mystery novel, 
uh, which is, you know, quite exciting for me. I mean, I, as I said earlier, I read a lot of mystery novels. And when you're a writer and you have lots of time on your hands, you think, oh, I can write one of those. <laughs> or let's see if I can write one of those. So I've, uh, yeah, I've got a lot of projects going. I think from when I, I've been a, a freelance journalist for so long uh, um, that I got used to the idea of, of being nervous if I only had one thing that I was working on. You know, as a freelance journalist, if you're only working on one article, you're going to starve to death in three months. Uh, so I always had two or three things going at the same time. And so that I, I still am now. I, I've, I've got um, several things that I'm working on. And it's also a good way of, of uh, avoiding writer's block. If you're only working on one book and you get kind of stuck on it, then you, it's, you're, you're kind of stuck. But if you've got something else you can turn to, like a translation, for example then you, you're, if you get stuck on one project, you just say, oh, well, I guess I'll spend the afternoon working on this other project until the, the first one sort of unsticks itself. So, yeah, I've got a few things going. Well, and thank you so very much for joining us today. It's been a, a real pleasure speaking with you. It's been a pleasure for me, too. Thank you, Susan. That was Susan Johnson in conversation with Wayne Grady about his novel, The Good Father. As always, I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our spring season runs through June, and it's all available online at writersfestival.org, so all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubey. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. And thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.